Welcome to the Cornell Tech at Bloomberg podcast, in which we bring you conversations we've had during our monthly speaker series held at Bloomberg's global headquarters in New York City. Cornell Tech at Bloomberg brings together students from Cornell Tech, Bloomberg employees, and members of New York's technology community to hear from entrepreneurs, investors, and thought leaders, luminaries from the global technology sector. Evolving business strategies were indispensable during the initial phase of the pandemic, and Etsy did just that. Hi, I'm Scarlett Fu with Bloomberg News, and in this episode, we have the pleasure of speaking with Etsy's CEO, Josh Silverman, about his career journey from the dot-com bubble to the challenges presented by COVID-19. We'll discuss how he transformed the Etsy platform to connect mask sellers and buyers, and the balance the company needs to find with social responsibility as they impact society around us. In this edition of our series, we are joined by Etsy CEO, Josh Silverman. Josh was appointed to Etsy's board of directors in 2016, and he was named CEO in 2017. Over the course of his two decade plus career, he has held leadership roles at Invite, or I should say Evite, Evite of course, the modern variation of Invite, and Skype. Josh, welcome, and thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Now, um, on our agenda, we'll talk about killer features, how to be a good citizen and a profitable business and everything you ever want to know about masks. Josh, um, first of all, I just want to get a little background here. Tell us where you're joining us from, because I know Etsy has this incredible headquarter, uh, headquarters in Brooklyn with a lot of greenery, but it looks like even that is too much greenery for Etsy in Brooklyn. Yeah, we do have a beautiful headquarters, which is um, very environmentally sustainable. Uh, and full of green space, but we didn't feel it was safe to have our employees uh, in at this time. So uh, we actually shut down all of our offices globally at the very uh, beginning of March and have all been working from home since then. So I'm in uh, Litchfield County, Connecticut, which is a, a fairly rural part of, of Connecticut. Well, I'm sure you look forward to the day when you can see your colleagues at the headquarters. I want to start um, and go back a little bit in time to your history, because before Etsy and before Skype and before Evite, uh, you came out of Brown University. And in the early 1990s, you worked for New Jersey Senator Bill Bradley. So you started off in government and public and public policy. How did you go from that to entrepreneurship and technology? Yeah, such a good question. No, my goal was really to have a positive impact on my community and my society. And I thought that politics would be a good way to do that. And I was super passionate about healthcare reform, which um, became an important topic in the early 1990s and is still a very important topic today. And, you know, uh, I, I, um, I was lucky enough to get a job working for a senator. And I think the, the what worked for me was I didn't give myself a plan B. Uh, I had plan A and plan B was to make plan A work. Um, so I slept on couches uh, in Washington, D.C. I graduated with no job and I just knocked on doors until I could talk my way into a job doing what I loved, which was trying to fix the healthcare system for um, for the United States government and uh, or for citizens of the United States. And I worked my tail off um, for several years. I spent the first 40 hours of my day answering mail and doing constituent outreach, which was my day job. And then I spent another 40 or 50 hours every week writing policy papers and coming up with proposals and, and, and doing things that no one had asked me to do, but I was just volunteering my hand, uh, volunteering and, and, and raising my hand to do. And that caught the attention of the Senator's chief of staff. So uh, he ended up hiring me into my next job and, and, and then on and on. So the lesson that I took from that was 
you know, I didn't know at 21 and I'm not sure I know now what my life plan is. This notion that you know what you're going to do for the rest of your life seems really overwhelming and it can cause one to get really stuck. For me, a goal that is maybe three to four years out, what do I feel would be a great accomplishment over the next three to four years that would have me doing something I believe has purpose, that would have me learning skills that are transferable and working with great people? And if I can do those things, that's going to be great. And then I can always reassess and I'll have more options later than I started with. That, that, right. That's been a helpful way of thinking for me. So it sounds like not having a plan worked out pretty well for you. Let's jump ahead to your time at Evite, which you co-founded, because you have said that the guest list, um, seeing who RSVP to a baby shower or a barbecue, was key and critical to Evite's early success. It sounds like an instance where technology improved upon the original analog experience. How did you figure out the guests was a killer? Yeah, another great question. So I. Um, my original uh, notion for Evite was that it was going to save people time. I was working, I graduated from business school and I had this job at a company and I was again working 80 or 90 hours a week. And so I had time at eight o'clock on Friday night to go to dinner, but I had no time during the week to plan that dinner. And I thought that was something that everyone needed. And so this sort of time saving utility. And so we launched Evite and we, you know, started to get people out there using it. And I went and talked with every single person who sent an Evite in the early days. And what I heard them say was, uh, you know, I love the who's coming list and blah and blah. And blah and blah could be any of 50 features. But the first thing everyone said was, I love the who's coming list. And so what, what the team and I, what we took from that was we're giving people something that they never could get before. And that's who's going to come to the event before I commit my night. You know, if you ask me, do you want to come over for dinner on Friday? What I really want to know is who else is coming. But that's <laughs> not like, that's not okay to ask, right? I don't care what you're serving. I don't care what the decorations are. But, you know, I, I want to know, is my ex-girlfriend going to be there or is, you know, whatever. And, and that was never cool to ask in the past. And so Evi did give you something that you couldn't get any other way. And understanding that and making that the, who's the, the, the center of the experience was incredibly important. And in fact, after Evite launched, we had a whole bunch of copycats. Hmm. And they all thought that it was about pretty invitations. <laughs> and, um, and it wasn't about pretty invitations. In fact, the kinds of people that were using Evite in 1999 were not the kinds of people who cared about pretty invitations. I mean, when we go back to that time, many people had a dial-up internet access. A lot of people yeah. didn't even email. And so you were a little geeky if you were using Evite. So it was mostly men, and it was mostly people who were not precious about what the thing looked like. They just wanted to connect a lot of people often. And so getting that key insight about who the customer was and then uh -huh. listening really hard for what that killer feature was, that, that I think changed everything for us. Now, speaking of connecting people often, in the early 2000s moved over to eBay and eventually you ran the Skype service. You built up Skype from a sub $2 billion division to an $8.5 billion business by the time Microsoft came calling in 2011. Um, Okay, first of all, talk about the killer feature for Skype and also the number one lesson that you learned from your time, from your time running Skype. So um, let's start with what I took from Evite. 
listening really hard to the customers for what you're really about. So when I got to Skype, yeah, usage was decelerating, everything was decelerating. And the mission of Skype was the whole world can talk for free. In other words, it was about free phone calls. But phone calls were becoming free anyway. When I went and spent time with people who used Skype, they'd say, oh, I love Skype because my fiance and I were able to maintain our relationship while we were far apart. Or I was you know, serving in, in the Iraq war and I could stay close with my kids during that time or things like that. And, and what, what they were really saying was we can be together when we can't be in the same room. And so we embraced that as the mission of Skype, be together when you can't be in the same room. And that opened up so many more possibilities, particularly video. And so we pivoted Skype to go from being about free phone calls to being about video calling. And again, if you look at timing, where are customers at in their life cycle? This is now 2008 and 2009. The iPhone had just been launched. And many laptops were now shipping with a webcam built in and speakers and a microphone built in. So suddenly you can use video in a way that you couldn't have even two or three years prior. So we really leaned into video as the main killer app of Skype, and that gave it a whole second life. All right, so let's fast forward a couple of years now and move on to Etsy and how you were on the board of directors for about six months before you were named CEO of the company. Now, this CEO appointment came at a difficult time for the company because it had been only listed for about one and a half years. There were activist investors who were um, getting in on the action, buying up stakes and, and making their presence felt. The previous CEO was also ousted. There was a round of firings. What was that transition like for you? It was really hard. I mean, morale was very low. Um, and there was a lot of questions about what Etsy's role and purpose was. And, and I want to say that Etsy had always had the best of intentions. It had really wanted to prove to the world that it could be a great corporate citizen and a great business. Um, but the business part wasn't going very well. And um, so that meant that we had to make a lot of very difficult decisions in a short amount of time to allow Etsy to continue on as, a, as an independent company. We had to really prove to the world that we deserved to exist as a standalone business. And that meant making a lot of, of really tough choices. And those choices included doing things like uh, dropping the uh, B Corp certification uh, in part because of a lot of red tape. I, I wanna touch on that idea you brought up about being a great corporate citizen and a great business. Are those two ideas inherently in conflict? How do you go about reconciling them in a world where the gap between the haves and the have-nots, and we're talking people and companies here, just keep getting wider? I think that's one of the most important myths that I, I, I would like to debunk. And I think with Etsy, if there's one thing we can do together with Etsy, it's to help debunk this myth that being a great corporate citizen comes at the expense of being a great business or vice versa. In fact, being a great citizen makes you a better business. And so you need to do the two in conjunction. And in fact, my fear for Etsy was it was performing very badly from a you know, stock market performance. And the what the world was hearing was, well, that's because we're trying to be a good citizen. And that connection, I think, is incredibly damaging. If you, you know, if you look at the state of politics today, uh, it, it's pretty tough to see government being really effective at getting a lot done for us. If our corporate leaders can't step forward and make a positive impact on the world, where are we? 
we need companies to step forward and, and, and have a positive impact. And I very much believe that being a great citizen is part and parcel with being a great business. And I think we've done a lot to show that at Etsy. You know, at the same time that our, our stock price is up 13-fold, we have become, uh, you know, an entirely zero-carbon company. We've become a much more diverse and inclusive company, and we have significantly improved our economic impact, the, the economic empowerment that is the core of, of our day job and the core of our, of our social mission. So in every way, I think we are measurably and demonstrably a much more socially responsible company at the same time that we are a more financially successful company. Yeah, for a lot of people, a lot of investors, that B Corp designation is a stamp of approval. It means a lot, and it wouldn't be there if uh, it didn't serve a purpose. Do you think it's possible for a B Corp company to be a successful publicly traded company? You know, so the um, management team before me had already said that Etsy would not uh, would give up its B Corp certification. So that's actually not something that I decided. It had been communicated a year before I arrived, and the reason for that is very simple. Um, uh, in, in order to become, Etsy was already public. In order to recertify as a B Corp, um, the company would need to have 75% of its shareholders vote to move from being a C Corp to a B Corp. And basically what the message would need to be is as a C Corp, we can't be socially responsible. Um, being uh, socially responsible is, uh, is inconsistent with being a publicly traded uh, C Corp. And therefore, we need to sacrifice uh, your returns as shareholders in order to become socially responsible. And A, uh, nobody's going to vote for that. And mm. B, I don't believe it to be true for a second. In fact, I hope if there's one thing people say about what we've done over the past three and a half years, it's to prove that we can be uh, a very socially responsible company and be a very uh, financially successful company at the same time. So, uh, you know, honestly, a lot of people look for these kinds of stamps of approval or certifications to greenwash what is otherwise a not great business model. Hmm. You know, you see a lot of companies out there with business models you really question who are looking for those kinds of B Corp or other kinds of stamps of approval. Um, and in fact, Etsy's day job is a great day job. We give over three million sellers a chance to earn a living. And without Etsy... Uh, I think they would have a much harder time earning a living and finding a place for themselves in the world. So we take that mission really seriously. And we think we can do it with zero carbon uh, footprint. Right. And we, think we can do it with an unusually diverse and inclusive workforce. And uh, so I, 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 I see nothing holding us back as a publicly traded company. What I do think is important is that we're very clear about how we should be held accountable. Yeah. Where are we going to focus on making the world a better place? And then we actually are very transparent. We have outside auditors come and audit our data, and then we publish our data. They publish data about what they find about us, and the world can hold us accountable. And the same way that shareholders hold a public company accountable for financial results, we want to be held accountable for making strong progress in our social impact goals as well. And that's how I think the same discipline that makes you a good uh, financial investment can make you a good corporate citizen and vice versa. And being held accountable is certainly one of the key tenets of being a good leader as well. I wonder, Josh, when you look back, is there any part of that transition from being on the board of directors to being CEO that you, if you could redo, is there any part of it that you would redo? Yeah, I mean, um, uh, 
I think any reflective leader uh, will will have a lot of things that they would have done differently with some time and space. I, I certainly have some. I'd say the number one thing is, you know, we we had to move fast to make a lot of changes at Etsy. So within my fifth week within the company, we had done a massive restructuring. Almost every single employee had a different job. And we had um, cut over 60% of all of the projects in the pipeline we'd eliminated, including massive projects that people had worked on for a very long time. We did a lot of things that were really um, felt very jarring and difficult. And um, uh, I, I think I could have been, done a better job giving the team even more context for why we needed to move so fast and why so much change was was necessary. You know, there was an external perspective of Etsy that Etsy was really not succeeding and probably wouldn't be an independent company very long. And I took for granted that the the employees inside the company uh, had that context. And I think in hindsight, many of them didn't. And we needed to be even, I needed to be even clearer uh, and more transparent about that. And when we started having those very frank, very honest conversations, people understood more why we needed to, to do what we did. And I think um, it helped people to, to, to get on board. Yeah, it never hurts to explain and give context, especially at a time of rapid change. Right, let's talk about um, what's going on at Etsy right now. Gosh, Etsy had an incredible second quarter. I was looking at the numbers, gross merchandise sales jumping 93%, almost doubling. Masks were the undeniable hot sellers. We talked earlier about killer features. Are masks the killer feature for Etsy? Well, I mean, if you put aside masks, Etsy grew 97% year over year last quarter. <laughs> so I would say Etsy is super thriving even without masks. But I do think that masks are sort of emblematic of the power of Etsy and what is so great about Etsy. We had a moment we have, we are living in a moment of national crisis and the nation needs uh, masks. And Etsy has been able to harness the power of cottage industry to come to the rescue and provide that mask that people need so much. And by the way, do it in a way that gives people a sense of style. You know, they've got lots of choice, things that are made just for them. And importantly, do it in a way that provides precious income to other small businesses. So when you're shopping on Etsy, you're supporting a small business and people feel great about that. And, and lastly, doing it in a way that doesn't take PPE, proper medical gear, away from hospitals and, and, and other people who really need to have PPE. So that idea that we can leverage cottage industry to rise to the needs of everyday consumers, and in doing so, let consumers support their fellow citizens, um, I think is, is, yeah. is really what Etsy is in a nutshell. The other thing is, I think people really, um, in a world of mass consumerism where everyone is getting the same stuff ever cheaper that arrives in their door within you know an hour and they've forgotten about it an hour after they've used it and they've thrown it away and it goes in a landfill, people I think are seeking to own fewer things but have those things have more meaning. Mm. And that I think is where Etsy's sweet spot really lies. So when, when we talk about you know Skype was about being together when you can't be in the same room. When I got to Etsy, Etsy was about handmade. And the market for handmade is very small. Kind of Etsy is the market for handmade. But I don't think people wake up in the morning saying, I'm looking for something handmade and anything will do. Handmade is not actually a market. What we decided is Etsy is about special. I want to buy, you know, uh, something for my, for my partner. 
uh, to show that I'm thinking about her and I care about her. And, and that's special. It means something to me. I go to Etsy for that. I don't want, there's probably a lot of stuff on Amazon for sale, but Amazon's where I go for commodities. It can't be special if I bought it on Amazon. Um, so yeah. Etsy's where I go when I want to have things that mean something to me. So you touched on a couple of things that I want to kind of bring together, this virtuous circle of what Etsy can do and how it's about special. You put out a call to sellers to sew and to make masks in mass. Walk us through how it happened. I mean, obviously there was a time where the government was not telling us to wear masks because of a concern that it would take away from PPE for uh, frontline workers. You went ahead and made a decision that turned out to work out really well for your customers, for your sellers and for Etsy. Yeah, I mean, it was crazy. Uh, I woke up on April 2nd, you know, my whole team and I woke up on April 2nd to find that sales on Etsy had exploded. Overnight, they had exploded. And by eight o'clock in the morning, I'm on Slack with my team diagnosing what's going on. And it turns out that the, the CDC had changed its guidance in the United States to recommend masks. And all of a sudden, we'd seen this insane geyser of demand for masks. And when you search for masks on Etsy, what you saw at that time were mostly Halloween masks and face cream. Because for the entire history of Etsy, if you searched for masks, that's almost certainly what you were looking for. And so we had to make a decision. Are we going to have an all hands on deck and have a large part of the team, you know, divert their attention away from their roadmap to go focus on masks, which might only last for three days or a week. We thought maybe this will last for two weeks. Um, you know, or, or 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 should we just have people stay the course um, and not get distracted? But it felt like masks were again so emblematic of the Etsy brand that it made sense for people for for us to embrace this moment. And so we diverted a lot of time and attention. The search engine team had to really re rework how the search engine worked, and the marketing team had to reach out and and start to market masks and and particularly get sellers um, on board. And so we sent out communications to our sellers saying, effectively calling all sellers, please start making masks. If you have a sewing machine, please start making masks. And we included a link to information on what the pattern should look like for a mask, what types of fabrics you can use for masks, and what you are and aren't allowed to say about masks. Uh. For example, you're not allowed to say that they protect you from COVID because we're not sure that they do. Um, you know, So we're not gonna make any false medical claims. Um, but within a week or two, we had 20,000 sellers selling masks on Etsy. Today, by the way, uh, you know, only a few months later, we have 120,000 sellers selling masks. And, uh, you know, between the, the months of April and July, $500 million worth of masks were sold on Etsy. So we're really glad that we did divert the time and attention away in, in early April to uh, to make the mask buying experience on Etsy strong. That's a half a billion dollar decision right there, Josh. Um, economists at Goldman Sachs have estimated the national mask mandate would have or could have prevented the U.S. from losing 5% of its GDP. That's one way of quantifying it. I wonder if you can share any numbers with us on what kind of impact a national mask mandate could have, might have on your mask sales, on revenue overall, on traffic to your site. Yeah, I mean, I hope that we've played some part in that $5 billion contribution to the economy. The fact that people can easily buy masks and masks, by the way, that they think have some sense of style. So they're not embarrassed to wear them. Um, I think that's that's part of this as well. 
Um, you know, I hope that it's played some role in that. You know, as I said, there's been $500 million of sales of masks on Etsy. And what that means is $500 million of income to 120,000 sellers. And those sellers, by the way, are buying supplies like cloth and, and elastic, and then they're spending money as well. And so that's also very helpful to the, to the U.S. economy. So we feel really good about all of those contributions uh, that, that, that Etsy's been making to the economy. What's the next big thing that could be as big as masks? You know, it's so hard to say. So, for example, in the month of June, bread all of a sudden blew up on Etsy. It was hard to find fresh baked bread in the stores. And a lot of people were starting to make bread in their own home. And so they wanted things like yeast mixes. And lo and behold, people who have artisanal yeast cultures and who make bread and baked goods started selling on Etsy. And it became a really big category. And so what um, it's been very difficult for us to predict trends. But the creativity of the entrepreneurs on Etsy is amazing. And they are so quick to adapt to consumer demands. They literally do it in hours. And when you compare that with traditional retail, traditional retail has people that are hired to think, what do I think is going to be the next trend six months from now? And then they've got to call up suppliers, order supplies, buy those, stock those in the warehouse, and hope that they guessed right. On Etsy, people show up and just start typing in keywords for things that they're interested in buying. Sellers figure that out very quickly and start making those things. And within days, uh, you know, the supply is there. And, and so the dynamism and agility of the marketplace, I think, is, is quite astonishing. Are there any other instances where you can think of some product that you wish you recognized demand and put out a call to, to fulfill? We're, we're learning more and more from masks about how to help sellers with, with, with hyper growth. So what we learned with masks was we had sellers go from zero to a thousand sales very quickly. And obviously issues can arise in terms of are they shipping on time and all those things. And, and it took us a couple of weeks to really get our arms around that. It's very well under control now. And we got it under control pretty fast. But there's a playbook we developed for how do we spot when a seller's sales are exploding? And then how do we jump in to help support her and make sure that she's got all the support she needed needs before any issues show up that a buyer might, might experience? And that, that's been a great learning that's made Etsy better and stronger. Now, speaking of learning, I want to get your overall observation on how consumer behavior has evolved as a result of the pandemic. We've seen a shift from spending on experiences to spending on items, spending on physical goods, towards e-commerce, uh, towards artisan, handmade, special, as you put it. How well positioned for this shift was Etsy? And do you think this is a permanent shift or will we go back to our previous normal? Yeah, I mean, there are, there were, and, and still maybe are, but there were millions of people who'd never shopped online as of March. And many of those people are now shopping online. I, I think many of us take for granted that, that most people shop online, but there were a lot of people who still didn't. And this forced a lot of people to give online shopping a try. And what I think they're finding is that it's a pretty satisfying experience. It's different than in-person retail in a lot of ways. But there's a lot about it that you love. For example, the opportunity to connect with the person who actually made the product and, you know, on Etsy and to have uh, communication with that person. I, I love that shirt, but can you do it short sleeve instead of long sleeve, for example? That kind of thing happens every minute of every day on Etsy. And so I think um, people are finding that uh, shopping online and shopping on Etsy can be really satisfying. 
We have done a lot over the past three and a half years to make Etsy a much uh, more compelling online shopping experience. Our search engine is much better than it used to be. We've made free shipping very prevalent on the site now, which is something people expect. We've really worked on making sure that we have a really trustworthy experience so people can buy with confidence. And all of those things, I think, have been incredibly important to this moment when people are coming and are trying Etsy, either for the first time or maybe they hadn't been on Etsy in several years, and they're finding that Etsy is a great place to shop. And so I think the hard work and the tough choices that we made over the past three and a half years have really set Etsy up well for, for success in this moment. I'm glad you bring up shipping because that's something I wanted to talk about with you. I went on the Etsy site and I noticed all the instances where uh, free shipping was included. And I guess I just trained for that. Um, how much of a deal breaker is lack of free shipping? And I bring this up because we know, for instance, the UPS, uh, FedEx and the U.S. Postal Service are all adding these holiday surcharges uh, for later this year when they anticipate a surge in demand. What are you telling your sellers? Yeah, so first, American consumers have very much been trained to expect that they will get free shipping. Most purchases bought online come with free shipping. Second, there's no such thing as free shipping. There's no parcel service on earth that's agreed to ship a package from here to there for free. That doesn't exist, right? So in fact, what's happened is shipping has become a cost of goods sold that is baked into the price of the item, like the raw materials, like the labor it took to make it, et cetera, right? So what people don't want is they don't want to be surprised at checkout with a shipping or any expense that they weren't expecting. And so what we've done is we've trained our sellers to incorporate the cost of shipping into the item price so that they don't surprise buyers at checkout. And that has really helped to make Etsy a more trustworthy experience, more aligned with what uh, consumers are seeing elsewhere. So the cost of shipping still very much matters, whether it's, you know, whether people call it free shipping or not. And therefore, if postal services raise their prices, that does increase cost to consumers and budgets are tight these days. And so, you know, we believe that the U.S. Postal Service is critical infrastructure in the United States that is so important to supporting industry, which means supporting jobs, supporting small business people like the people who sell on Etsy. So yeah. we're lobbying very hard in Congress to make sure that the U.S. Postal Service is supported uh, by our government because there's a lot at stake there. Are there any steps that you're taking in the meantime for Etsy sellers who do rely on the Postal Service? I mean, can you offer them uh, or recommend workarounds or any steps to accommodate um, the funding issues that we're currently seeing? Absolutely. So we, we offer a, a shipping label solution where we take all of the demand from all of our sellers and bulk purchase shipping labels with places like the U.S. Postal Service and Royal Mail so that our sellers get very good pricing uh, so they can benefit from the, the sort of the, the, the scale of the community. That, that's first, and that's very important. They also get the convenience of being able to just press a button and print a label and put it on the box and, and, and also be able to put it on their porch and not have to have uh, direct face-to-face -face interaction with, with, with the post office, for example. Um, mm -hmm. We are talking to them about shipping times, and we're actually able to track shipping times and make sure that we understand how long it will take for a package to arrive and set buyers expectations automatically. And in fact, we don't even need to communicate with our sellers. We get data about how long it's taking on average for a package to arrive. And we can set the expectations with the buyers, wow. to make sure that buyers aren't disappointed. 
Yeah, there's a theme that comes up again and again, which is you don't want to surprise your buyers. You want to make sure that they are aware of what's involved here. Let's go back to your sellers because you talked earlier about she and her every time you mentioned a seller. Um, give us a demographic of your average seller and how that's changed since the pandemic began. Yeah, uh, over 85% of our sellers are women. Um, and so we tend to use the female pronoun mostly at Etsy. Uh, we do have a lot of great male sellers too, and we don't want to uh, forget them. Uh, but you know, over 85% of our sellers are women, 91% are businesses of one, um, and they can run a global business from their living room or their garage. And you know, Etsy is the easiest way for an entrepreneur to start a business. You don't need to rent retail space. You don't need to invest in a lot of inventory for 20 cents, which is the cost of listing an item on Etsy and creative passion. You can get a global business up and running. People were furloughed, of course, uh, during the pandemic or lost their job, and many of them haven't been able to get that job back. Are you seeing a lot more people turn to selling items on Etsy to uh, make up for lost income, to supplement their income? I just wonder if you could share some insights that you gathered on this. Yes, we have seen a real growth in new sellers on Etsy. We added about twice as many new sellers in the second quarter of 2020 as we added in the second quarter of 2019. And a lot of those are people who had a retail store. For example, Jean the Baker, who has a, a bakery in, um, in Florida, and it's been a very successful thriving bakery, which he had to shut down due to COVID. And so he went on Google and, and searched for where can I sell things online and, uh, and, and found Etsy. And he opened up an Etsy shop and that Etsy shop has really thrived. And he's someone who sells yeast cultures, for example, and, and, and homemade bread. And, you know, he's had thriving sales and been able to keep his employees um, going and busy and earn good income for, for himself and his team. But I think um, as importantly, when he had a retail shop in Miami, he could serve whoever lived within a few blocks of his store. All of a sudden, he's reaching a global audience of people that are really passionate about bread making. And they want to know about why he did his yeast culture the way he did. And they want to trade recipes. And they want to really engage with the passion that he has. And I think that is also very satisfying for him and for the people who buy from him. So I think we are seeing a lot of people move online. And we're seeing a lot of people discover some of the real benefits and, and joys of it that go beyond just the economic benefits. When I was looking through the Etsy page, I noticed that um, under editor's pick, there was a Black-owned Etsy shop feature. And it offers all kinds of items made by a certain group of sellers. Can you explain whether that was a result of what we'd seen this spring? Or is it something that you had on offer for a while now? Yeah, great question. So th that's actually the Black Owned Shops highlight is something which we've been doing for the past several years in honor of Black History Month. And if I can roll the tape back even further, when I first joined Etsy, I talked about making hard choices and asking the team to focus. And we did that in every area of the business. What are the fewest things we need to do to succeed? And we did that in corporate social responsibility, just like we did that in other areas of the business. And so instead of trying to um, fix every problem in society, we said, let's pick a very few and let's really lean hard into trying to contribute to positive outcomes in those areas. And diversity and inclusion was one of them. So since 2017, we've been, we've been very focused on, on that area and embracing Black History Month and highlighting Black sellers as part of Black History Month was part of that. So 
when um, the, the, the George Floyd, the, the terrible George Floyd murder uh, happened, we had a lot of demand from buyers who wanted to support black sellers. And fortunately, we already had from Black History Month a curated set of items that we could put forth, we could very quickly get and put out so that buyers had a place to go. And I'm, I'm happy to report that that's actually been the most popular curated collection. We have all kinds of curated collections on Etsy for all kinds of things. But the, the, the highlighted Black-owned shops that we ran uh, over, over those important few weeks, um, actually the best-selling curated collection we've had. And what that means is there's a lot of buyers out there that really have been looking to support, hmm. specifically support Black sellers. And, and we're happy that we, we were able to, to rise to that moment. How do you vet sellers to make sure that there are no bad actors jumping on the bandwagon, no one trying to game the system, get in on this feature, this curated um, offer that you have? Yeah, another great question. And, you know, we thought really hard about that. And we don't ask sellers to identify themselves. We don't ask for their race. And there's a lot of reasons why we don't want to ask for their race. And we don't want to be the arbiter of who's part of what community. That puts us in a very inappropriate position. So uh, we thought hard about how are we going to deal with that. And, and, and that's where embracing community-led solutions has really helped. So Etsy has this concept of teams. Any seller can raise his or her hand and create a team. And that can, team can be about anything they want. You know, people who make ceramics or sellers in Portland, Oregon, or, you know, kind of whatever you want. And we will provide them some tools for them to build community. So what we did is we supported some communities for Black-owned teams. And those teams can self-organize and self-police about membership within their community. And then we would go to those teams for recommendations on Black-owned shops. And so we really put the power in the hands of the community to support the community. So has there been an issue thus far? And if, if there hasn't, how do you go about resolving it? Um, there hasn't been. And we really asked the teams to help us with that because the last thing that we want at Etsy is to be judging, you know, who's part of what community or, or, or part of what race. You know, we know that that can be very fraught. And so we'd rather let the teams... Um, and the communities themselves uh, uh, manage that. I think they're better positioned to do that. Got it. Some people might criticize that and say, though, that Etsy is trying to be uh, just a platform and not, I don't want to say policing, but not playing a bigger role in ensuring that everyone sticks by the spirit of the rules. Would you well, respond to that? I would say the opposite. I would say that it's really fraught to try to look at someone and decide what their race is. You know, we're all, you know, very diverse communities out there and people might surprise you. Um, and so, uh, you know, us trying to judge just uh, from external things what someone's race is, is, is just not appropriate. Um, and, um, you know, and, and so we think that the black community is best positioned to organize teams and, and, and um, figure out and work together as a community and, and make sure that they have people in the community who really are uh, members of the black community and, and, and manage uh, gaming. Uh, I think it's, 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 it's a more appropriate solution. All right, let's talk about tech platforms overall because I wanna get your thoughts on the influence and the outsized role that technology companies, particularly the biggest ones, play these days. We talked about Evite earlier. You were actually in the process of starting another company uh, called Together when you found out about Evite and you ended up joining Evite as a co-founder. So you went from being a potential competitor to a co-founder. That was back in the late 90s, 1998. Does that kind of let's join forces and build it together ethos still exist in the tech industry today or 
are we just in a more cutthroat environment now? You know, I hope it still does. Um, and by the way, Alan Selena, I was so fortunate to find Alan Selena, and they're such incredible entrepreneurs. Um, and, you know, together we made so much of a stronger team than we would have made apart. So I, I think um, all of our lives would have been very different if we if we hadn't joined forces together. Uh, and I feel really lucky to have been partnered, partnered with, with the two of them. Um, but, you know, we're in a world where more and more power is held by very few tech companies. And um, it's harder and harder to compete with the very big, uh, the very big companies in tech. And so I worry that the opportunity for small startups with a great idea and passion to come and build a customer base and get, get awareness, I think it is harder. Um, and I think it's something that we should be paying attention to. Well, you studied public policy. You worked for Senator Bill Bradley. You were at Booz Hansen for a couple of years, so you know how to uh, be a management consultant. Put on that hat for us right now, Josh. What kind of government regulation do you think is coming for big tech, for Amazon, for Facebook, for those companies? You know, it's, it's, it's hard for me to predict because there's policy and there's politics, and politics right now is, is really fraught. Um, and so what will the government get its act together to do? I'm not sure. But I do think we need to make sure that we have a level playing field so that great ideas can come to the light and great entrepreneurs can succeed, which I think is important so customers can get benefits and keep getting innovation, and also so that everyone has economic opportunity, so that people can have a great idea and be able to launch that idea and build a business and, and succeed. I think it's important for many reasons. Now, you recently called out Amazon for its support of a California consumer protection bill. Explain why that bill would be bad for Etsy and for other e-commerce platforms. Yeah, there was a, um, a, a hole in the law where, you know, if, if something goes wrong, um, is the is the, there's, there's an understanding of liability that the person who sold it to you is liable if, if the product malfunctions. And so is in an online marketplace, what is the definition of a retailer? Is it Amazon or is it the individual merchant on Amazon, for example? And uh, so there was a court case in California that settled that, that said, if it looks like a duck and smells like a duck, it's a duck. So for Amazon, Amazon picks the products, warehouses the products, ships the products in an Amazon box that arrives in an Amazon truck. And that in Amazon's case, it's a duck, it's a retailer, and that Amazon should be strictly liable for that. And so what Amazon did is it turned around and it took a bill that it wasn't supporting in California and threw its full force behind supporting this bill to say now every marketplace should be responsible, should be strictly liable for every single thing sold on its marketplace, meaning Etsy in particular and eBay should have the same burden that Amazon does. And of course, Etsy and eBay, if we were in that same court in California, the judge we think very likely would have ruled differently because we don't warehouse the products. We don't fulfill the products. We don't pick the products. We're very, very different than Amazon. We are truly peer to peer. But what Amazon is doing is saying, wow, this is mildly inconvenient for us, but it's so expensive and so difficult for a company like Etsy that it would be crushing to Etsy. So by embracing mm -hmm. this law, we can put Etsy in a very, very difficult position and hurt the 3 million small businesses on Etsy that are trying to compete with Amazon. So I think this is really about making Amazon stronger on the backs of the small entrepreneurs. It sounds suspiciously like when Amazon was once against, um, as opposed to states imposing sales tax on uh, Amazon purchases, and then at some point turned around and embraced it completely. 
Exactly, exactly like that. I think even more dangerous because the costs of this in terms of just frivolous lawsuits, you know, suddenly you've got a deep pocket to go after. So you can raise a frivolous lawsuit, which costs 50 or $100,000 to make go away, which times, you know, thousands of frivolous lawsuits is a tremendous amount of expense, all of which would have to get passed along to the consumer. And again, right now, anyone can open a shop on Etsy for 20 cents. And if strict liability and frivolous lawsuits come about, obviously it's going to become much more expensive to open a shop. And that's going to shut many, many people out of this ecosystem. Yeah. And we think that's terribly unfortunate. So this is much more nefarious, I think, even than, than the state taxes were. It must be so frustrating because you're a platform. And when I see your platform, you're kind of more eBay than you would be Amazon, which sells its own stuff, packages everything under its own name, operates platform, operates uh, warehouses, and of course, it's a logistics monster. Um, and it's, it's frustrating to be defined, I'm sure, relative to eBay or Amazon. Yet at the same time, you've got Amazon kind of leading the way in terms of uh, not writing the rules, but maybe guiding rulemaking in, in parts of the country. How frustrating is that for you? You know, they have a lot of power in a lot of areas. And I think the world wants alternatives to Amazon. I think the world is begging for alternatives to Amazon. So I think the fact that Amazon is pushing forward a bill like this at a time when there's so much scrutiny about their market power is, frankly, a little bit shocking. For all the entrepreneurs out there, those who are running their own small businesses and hope to build it up into something that uh, is a viable company, at some point, a big tech company, an Amazon, an Alphabet, a Facebook might come knocking and, and offer to buy a business. What would you advise them? How would you advise them to proceed in order to make sure that they still keep uh, virtue of their business, the mission behind it, without selling out completely, yet maybe getting some of the return on investment. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to second guess what's right for any given entrepreneur. And, you know, what, where are they in their life? What future do they see for their business? How much conviction do they have for their business? Um, you know, a lot of people start businesses with very little and suddenly have an opportunity to, you know, to make a different life for themselves and their family. And that's that's what America's about. And, you know, my grandparents arrived on this in this country with you know very little education and, and no money and worked in the sweatshops their life and here I am just you know two generations later so um, you know I, I, we want people to, to succeed but what I would ask them is um, you know is this going to make your business stronger uh, is is there synergy here that you think is going to make your business better and, and what are your personal goals what do you want out of life and is this going to help you to uh, to achieve your personal goals it almost becomes an existential question in many ways. Josh, uh, you met, you sit on several boards, including Shake Shacks. Um, wonder if you could tell us what kind of best practices you share with these other companies, especially during the pandemic. Everyone's looking for ideas and for suggestions on how to get through this difficult period. What parts of Etsy's success do you think they can replicate? What parts of their success do you think you can borrow for Etsy? Well, I'll tell you what, what Randy, the CEO of, of Shake Shack, and I, we spend a lot of time talking about how do we support our team? You know, this is a time of tremendous emotional stress for uh, all of the people who, who work with us for so many different reasons right now. It's the pandemic, uh, the, the divisiveness of our politics, the economic frailty. And so making sure that our team has emotional support, that they have the resources they need to do their job. Um, you know, we, we spend a lot of time brainstorming together about how do we make sure that we do that. And I think that's a critical topic for all leaders to be thinking about right now.
Absolutely. Our right, final question to Josh Silverman. What is your favorite item that you've purchased on Etsy? Uh, I think it's my desk. I have this beautiful desk. So there was this General Electric factory in Indiana that used to ha have 100,000 employees, and it's now tragically defunct. But there's an Etsy seller that goes into that factory and cuts up the, the machine tools and turns it into furniture. And so I have this desk that's this beautiful steel structure with a glass uh, tabletop that used to be a machining table. And uh, I, I love it because it's beautiful and I love it because of, of what it stands for in terms of reinvention and recreation. Yeah, it's got a great story behind it. Josh Silverman, I want to thank you. Josh Silverman is CEO of Etsy for joining us and giving us some perspective here. Thanks for listening. Be sure to follow Tech at Bloomberg on Twitter, like Cornell Tech at Bloomberg on Facebook, or visit the Cornell Tech at Bloomberg podcast homepage to sign up for the invites to future events in this series. You can also watch any of the interviews from this event series on Inside Bloomberg on YouTube.